Turn, if you would, to the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew. I, I told my daughter I was trying not to fall asleep during the lesson. We were at the airport at midnight last night picking up my wife because of all the weather. She was delayed, so we got home about one, but that's okay. Several of you have asked, and I will tell you, just put in my commercial, about the play that my daughter and I are in. We are in Cheaper by the Dozen. It starts in September in Cleburne. Uh, I will have to tell you that if you blink, you might miss my contribution to the play, just to let you know. She, on the other hand, has lots of parts in the, in the play, so that will be, we will be on Thursday nights and Saturday nights for the month of September if you are interested in going. It's a cute play. Um, last week, during rehearsal, the individual that played the father uh, wasn't there, so I spent the whole week reading his lines, since my part is, did I mention it's rather small? Um, and at some point, one of the sons comes up to him and says, Dad, do you have a million dollars? And he said, no, I have a million kids. And at some point in a man's life, he has to choose between the two. For some reason, that related to me, I mean. <laughs> Last week, we picked up in verse 13 of chapter 16 in what is one of the most important passages in the entire book of Matthew, to the point that we're going to reread it and have a few more comments about it since we were rushed to get through six verses last week. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, remember he's been having conflicts with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and he's left town for a while. Caesarea Philippi is a good old-fashioned pagan Roman town. So he goes up there and he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? Because they are well aware that when he says, who is the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And we had a long discussion last week about the importance of this question, who do we think Jesus is? There have been tens and tens of thousands of books written in the last 2,000 years about who Jesus is. There is no more important question in all of life, in all of existence, of whether you determine who Jesus is. Was he or was he not? Is he or is he not? Those are the questions that we have to ask. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We had a discussion about what is the rock upon which Christ is building his church. Is it the person of Peter? If you're a good Roman Catholic, that's the right answer. Peter, the first pope, the head of the church, was given the authority, as we'll see in just a moment, the authority to bind and to let loose. 
Is that the answer? Probably not. It could be. We looked at actually three different answers last week. That was one. It could be Peter as a representative of the apostles. Remember that uh, over in Ephesians, it tells us that the church is built upon the teaching of the apostles. Or it could mean the confession that, Je- that Peter made about who Christ was. You are the Christ. And on that rock, on that foundation of that confession, we will build the church. Or the rock could be Christ himself. Because we see that Jesus is the foundation stone of the church. So what is the right answer? Yes. We'll take out the first answer because we do not believe that Peter was anywhere in the scripture given authority over all the apostles. But we do recognize the importance of the apostles and their teaching. We recognize the importance of the confession. And of course, we recognize the importance of Jesus Christ as the foundation of the church. Now, I wanted to back up just one moment, though, and touch on a couple of things just to make sure that you understand. I normally wouldn't do this, but years ago I was teaching a class about the life of Christ, the entire life of Christ in seven weeks. I know you think that's impossible for me, but I actually did it. And in the first lesson, I talk about the birth of Christ, And I happen to mention that Jesus is God. And the next week before class, I had two individuals come up to me and say, wait a minute, did you say that Jesus is God? And I said, yes. We who have grown up in the church have heard this so often that we assume that everyone knows that that's what Christian doctrine teaches. So I want to touch very, very briefly on two exceptionally complicated subjects. The first is the Trinity. If you ask people about whether, I mean, whether they can explain the Trinity, most people go, eh, I don't know if I can. The Trinity teaches us that God is one being, but he is in three persons. He is God the Father, he is God the Son, and he is God the Holy Spirit. But it is not three gods. If you're a good Muslim, you think the Christians are crazy, you think we are tri-theist. We believe in three gods. No, there is only one God, but he exists in three persons, three presentations to us as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And at that point, you start trying to come up with a good analogy, and every one of those analogies begins to fall apart. So we accept it on the premise of the Scripture that God is three persons. I mean, people want to talk about you know, me, I'm a father, I am a uh, husband, and I am a human being. These are three roles that I play. And they say, ah, well, that's like Jesus. I mean, that's like God. Well, no, not really. 
Okay, let's talk about water, ice, and steam. No, not really. Okay, the analogies all begin to fall apart. I do have a very good Catholic friend, and his argument is that if he had to defend the, uh, uh, the Trinity, he'd be a good Jew, because he doesn't know how to defend it. Okay? So, doctrine number one is the nature of the Trinity. Doctrine number two is the nature of Christ. Christ is one person with two natures. He is all God. All the attributes of God are present in Jesus Christ. But he is fully human. All the attributes of humanity exist in Jesus Christ. And you go, how can that be? I mean, God has attributes of knowledge and power and Jesus was in one place at one time. How could he have all the attributes of God? And here I have a, do have a picture that I use in my mind to explain this because we're told that he emptied himself. He didn't get rid of them, but it's like he, when he came to earth, he took those divine attributes and he put them on the shelf. And he said, I am only going to use those when God the Father tells me to. Because he was demonstrating to us as human beings what a life lived according to the Father looked like. Now, occasionally he did pull them off the shelf. And when he did, it scared the bejeebers out of people. We saw one of these a couple of weeks ago when we saw Jesus walking across the water. We see it when he tells the storm to stop and it stops. We see it when he's doing miraculous deeds. We see it when he says, I saw you before you showed up here. How did you do that? Because he's God. So God is three persons. Jesus has two natures. He is God and he is humanity. Now, that will blow your mind. But when Peter tells Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he is acknowledging that he is more than just a good teacher, that he is more than just some spiritual being. He is acknowledging that he is God. And upon that confession, upon that rock of who Jesus is, the church exists today. So, that was the end of last week's lesson. Except for verse 19, which we cleverly didn't cover last week. I told you that this passage right here was a minefield, right? Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Here you go, I'm giving you the keys. What does that mean? In the scripture, keys are a sign of authority. The person who has the keys can open the door. The person who has the keys can lock the door. I don't know if you've ever read anything by, uh, what's his first name? Goff is his last name. He's kind of an interesting person, written a lot of books. And he makes a point. He invites people over his house. And he gives them, he gives them a key to his house. And he says, anytime you want to come, come. This is your house. That's kind of interesting. 
I don't give anybody a key to my house, except my kids. <laughs> I'm getting some mumbling over here about whether that's a good idea. I am giving you, who's you? There's that question again, right? There is that question. I am giving you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom. You, Peter, as the first pope, have the right to tell people they're in or they're out. That's a possible answer if you're a good Roman Catholic. I am giving you, the apostles, the keys to the kingdom. Well, that's a better answer, but it still kind of sounds like it's rather uh, exclusive. I am giving you, the church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, some of us aren't very nice people. I'm sure it doesn't include y'all. Why would he give anybody the keys to the kingdom? And what does it mean that he does? I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I am giving you, the church, the gospel. And you are going to proclaim the gospel to the world. And those who accept the gospel, who are in the kingdom on earth, will be in the kingdom in heaven. But you know what? Those who reject the gospel, those who are refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, they are bound on earth, they are bound in their sin, and they will be bound in the life to come. I am giving you the authority to spread the gospel, to spread my teachings, to spread this declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to all of humanity. And guess what? It is a matter of life and death. I am giving you the authority to do that. I am giving you the authority to look someone in the eye and say, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you can be in heaven. That is the power that I'm giving you. Now, we take this for granted. In fact, we take it for granted so much that we begin to see it as kind of a nuisance in our lives. I don't really want that authority. Now, first off, we can have a whole different discussion about the fact that our society as a whole is very um, leery of authority. We don't like authority. We do, but we pretend we don't. That's a whole different topic. And when we say that somebody has a certain amount of authority, we go, yeah, who died and gave you that authority? Oh, wait a minute. Jesus did. Jesus is going to give the church the gospel. And the gospel is the only solution for the problems of mankind. And that's what you and I have been given.
Is it the apostles that have been given this? Yes, it is. I mean, you look at the life of the apostles in the book of Acts, they're doing miraculous deeds, they're doing this, they're doing that, and they are telling people, you are going to heaven, or you're not. And the church is built upon the foundation of the teachings of the apostles. So we today have that authority. So when you hear somebody say, well, I believe in God, but I hate the church, we can take that one of two ways because we know, we casually mentioned this last week, the word church is often used one of two ways. The word church could mean this local body right here. And you grew up in some legalistic church and as soon as you could, you got away from it and you say, I hate that church. That's sad. That's bad. But if you tell Christ, I love you, but I hate the global universal church, those who have proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord, what you're saying is, I love you, but I hate your bride. And guess what? God's not, I mean, Jesus is not going to put up with that. He just isn't going to put up with it. So, whatever you loose will be loosed, whatever you bind will be bound, and I am giving you the authority to do this. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would he do that? I mean, huh? it wasn't his time yet. And we're going to have a nice discussion about that in the next verse. Remember our discussion a while back about Jesus doing miraculous actions. As a general rule, this wasn't always the case, but as a general rule, prior to this, if he was in a Gentile area and he performed some miracle, he told that Gentile, go tell all your buddies what happened. He cast the demons out of the individual into the pigs. The pigs run into the ocean or into the sea, and he tells that guy, go tell everybody. Gentile territory. As a general rule, though, when he did a miracle in the Jewish communities, he said, don't tell anybody. Now, they did, but he told them not to. Why? It wasn't his time yet. His time for what? Let's keep reading. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What was going to happen to him? I'm going to go back to that Jewish community. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to beat me to a pulp. That's what they're going to do. In fact, they're going to kill me. Now, if you were right here, okay, we have an advantage, okay? We're on this side of all of these events. But let's say you're on that side of these events, you understand getting beaten up. Bad thing, but you understand it. 
You understand dying. You've seen people die. You know all about dying. You don't know squat about being raised from the dead. So, I tell you, Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer. Okay, I understand that. That doesn't sound fun. I'm going to die. That doesn't sound fun. And I'm going to be raised from the dead. I don't have a clue what that means. So I've got two out of three that I understand, and they're both bad. They're both horrible. I mean, let's face it. Peter just acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you're a good Jew at this point in history, you know what that means. Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to walk up to the temple. He's going to walk up to the Roman governor and say, get out of Dodge. I'm back and you're not going to be here. And the people are going to pile around him and the Roman legions are going to come against him and Jesus is going to walk out there and say zap and they're all going to be gone and Jesus is going to build a throne just like David's and he's going to sit on it and Israel will be the center of the universe and Jesus says I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to beat me to a pulp and then they're going to kill me This doesn't sound like plan A. This sounds like a guy giving up. This sounds like a guy who's reading the wrong script. Jesus, don't you know that's not the right answer? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Peter has a rather bold personality. Jesus, if that's really you walking on the water, tell me to walk out there with you. Sure, come on out, Peter. Peter hops out of the boat, starts walking, and then Peter thinks about what he just did. Oh, shoot, and he sinks into the water. Peter acts, and then he thinks. And he looked at Jesus and he says, come on, come over here for a moment. I mean, he's diplomatic about this. You don't want to correct the master in front of the others, right? So he takes him over to the side and says, are you nuts? (laughs) Wait, that's a loose translation. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen, shall never happen. Jesus, didn't you read the book? Don't you know what the Messiah is supposed to do? Don't you know that this isn't it? Don't you know that I, Peter, and John, and all the rest of us are supposed to sit on little thrones around you? Don't you know you're our ticket to power and influence? Don't you know you can save us all? I mean, let's face it. A guy that can tell the storm to stop and it stops can certainly deal with a few Roman legions. All you do is tell this wind not to stop for a while. And he rebuked him. 
Now, that's a fascinating word. Do not, do not have a show of hands. How many of you at some point in your life have rebuked God? You wouldn't admit to that. But God, you've got this really messed up. God, you don't know what you're doing. God, this is the way we ought to work this, and you're going the wrong way. God, this is what I want, and you're giving me something else. God, what's wrong with you? And that's what Peter is doing with Jesus. Jesus, get with the program. I've got to knock some sense into you. But let me let you in on a little secret. Every time you rebuke God, God wins. God wins. But he turned and said to Peter, Get me behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He looks at Peter in the eye and says, Satan, get the heck out of here. Now, is he talking to Peter and addressing him as Satan? Could be. Or is he talking to Satan who is sitting behind Peter, whispering in Peter's ear, that's not the way things are supposed to be. That's not the way it's going to work out. That's not going to help you get what you want to get. You'd better change his mind. You'd better get him to do something else. I sat there after 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness, starving himself, and I came to him and I told him, if only you would bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And guess what? He laughed at me and he told me to get away. And it says that Satan left for a moment, but that he would come back. And here he is, whispering in Jesus' ear, don't do it God's way. I've got a better way. Don't do it the way God wants you to do it. I've got a better path. That is what Satan does today. God Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Scripture tells you this is what you ought to do. This is the path you ought to go. And we look at Jesus and we say, no, that's a stupid path. I know more than you do. Now, we would never say that. But you know, we are kind of convinced that if God really understood the situation the way that I understand the situation, that God would make a better choice. And what this is, is Satan whispering in our ears, God doesn't really have what's best for you in mind. I've told you that our uh, family is reading a book a month, and for actually last month, I'm a little behind. Uh, my wife picked uh, Hind's Feet in High Places. I don't know if you've read it. It's an allegory, somewhat like Pilgrim's Progress, only a much more modern work. It was written in the 70s. And the main character, Much Afraid, is on her journey, 
And the shepherd, Jesus, gives her two companions to help her on her journey. And the two companions are suffering and sorrow. And she says, no, I'm not going to go with them. Isn't there somebody better? Can't I go with joy instead of suffering? And the shepherd says, don't you trust me? And she says, yes, I do. I don't want this, but I trust you. But Satan is continually whispering in our ear, there's another way. Find another path. And Jesus turns to Peter, or Satan, or both, and says, go away. I told you once that I wasn't going to do what you wanted me to do. I'm telling you again. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then to Peter, he says, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, every human problem, I don't normally say every, but I'll go ahead and say it. Every human problem can ultimately be traced back to setting your mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. You walk into a situation, what would God have me to do? You're living a life, what would God have me to do? Your relationships aren't where you would like them to be, what would God have you do? Instead, we go, what's in it for me? We go into the room. How can I get something out of this? How can I, I, I do something? And our minds are on the things of man and not the things of God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, as long as you're doing that, as long as your mind is focused on the things of man and not the things of God, you are a hindrance to spreading the gospel. Now, I will add at this point, just so you know, Peter is going to deny Jesus before the crucifixion. He's going to witness the crucifixion. He's going to witness the resurrection. Jesus is going to commission him to feed his sheep. And Peter is going to bear witness to the risen Lord. And after that point, after that point, it is the things of God, not the things of men. What is it that allows us to keep our minds on the things of God and not the things of man? It is the resurrected Christ, the Holy Spirit that directs us. That's why we're told to present our bodies a living sacrifice so that our minds can be transformed. More about that in just a moment. What is Peter's problem? Peter is thinking about Peter. And God and Jesus says, stop that. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, guys, you think I'm the Messiah. You think I'm going to drive out the Romans. Let me tell you what you have to do. 
You have to deny yourself. What in the world does that mean? I've told you in here before, years, years ago, we had a book club with uh, people at work, and I had a good old-fashioned atheist in the group, and we read a book by C.S. Lewis, and it had a discussion about denying yourself in it. In fact, I went and looked at the book last night just to remind myself. And this guy, this friend of mine, he was a co-worker, he said, why in the world would you ever do that? I mean, as long as it's not hurting somebody else, as long as it's not taking somebody else's stuff, why would you deny yourself anything if you have the opportunity to do it? And here Jesus tells them, in order to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Now, let's make sure we understand first, we're not talking about denying yourself sin. You're supposed to not sin, okay? We understand that, right? What we're talking about here are things that are legitimately good, and God says, Jesus says, deny yourself that for the time being. Why would he do this? C.S. Lewis's answer in the book, by the way, is that by denying ourselves, we teach our bodies who's boss, and it's not your body. Now, we as 21st century Americans have some trouble with that. We like being comfortable. We like our air conditioning when it's hot. We live in Texas. We like our food when we're hungry. We like a cold beverage when it's, I mean, we like to feed our bodies. And you go, well, what's wrong with that? Because it teaches us that the body can control our lives. So he tells them to deny yourself. And the second thing he does is he tells them to take up their cross. Now, once again, we have a certain advantage because we're on this side of the crucifixion. But go back to their side of the crucifixion. What is the cross? To us, the cross is a piece of jewelry. It is something we wear around our neck. It's beautiful pictures that we see in stained glass in churches. Oh, how wonderful. I'm going to take up my cross and carry it. But you're a good Jew living in Roman-occupied territory. The cross was an instrument of torture that led to death. And I will emphasize the torture that leads to death. The Romans weren't really interested in cruel and unusual punishment unless they were trying to figure out how to do it better. That is, cause cruel and unusual punishment. Crucifixion was a horrible form of death. I mean, a guillotine is quick. Whack, you're dead. A cross, you hang on the thing until you just give up breathing or something or something. It could be days. It is a horrible form of death. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, deny yourself and take up the source, the instrument of your death. Now, that's bizarre. Why would they do that? 
Jesus tells the disciples, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to go get beaten up, he's going to die, and he's going to raise from the dead, but I'm not sure they understood that. And Peter says, no way, there's got to be a better plan A. And Jesus looks at us and says, you have to deny yourself. You have to die before you can be resurrected. You have to die to self. You cannot be the center of your interest. You cannot be your God and come after me. You've got to take yourself and present yourself as a sacrifice. Shoot, that doesn't sound like much fun. Take up his cross and follow me. Three things, deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Here we have one of the biggest apparent paradoxes of the scripture. You read a book about happiness, how to be happy, okay? We all want to be happy. That's a good thing, I guess. But you read it, and one of the truths you glean from it is if you're really working hard at being happy, you're going to be miserable. Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Because if I'm focusing on, am I happy, 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 ooh, I'm not as happy as I was three minutes ago, uh, but the moment you stop looking at your happiness and go help the neighbor with their dishes, guess what? It's the paradox. You become happy. How do you become happy? Go help somebody else do something. You can sit there in your chair, in your house, waiting for the world to come make you happy, and you will be a miserable person. I hate to tell you that. But the moment you reach out, it's the paradox. But this is the paradox on steroids. What does it mean? What does it mean to save your life? You are going to save your life. What does that mean? Well, it means not dying, but we all know that's foolishness, right? You all know, right? The odds are against you. You're going to die. Unless the Lord comes back, 
real soon, or you've lived such a holy life that he's going to send a fiery chariot down to pick you up. And I don't know about you, I don't think I'm on that list. We're going to die. So if saving my life means not dying, I don't have a chance. But what if saving my life means, okay, I'm going to die, but not today, a month from now would be better. I'm going to do whatever it takes to not die today. So when the Roman soldier, no, 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 that would be too easy. When the servant girl looks at Peter and says, I know you, you're with them. He's going to say, heck no, I'm not. Because he doesn't want to die today. He wants to save his life. And you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No servant girl has ever walked up to me and said, are you with him? But you know what? I've had acquaintances walk up to me and say, are you with him? I've had co-workers walk up to me. I've had strangers on the street. I've had people who are interested in saying what a stupid thing it is to follow Christ. Are you with him? No, I don't know anything about him. Why? Because we're interested in saving our lives for one more day. Just one more. But you see, it's not even our life. It may just be our reputation. It may be our comfort. God tells you, go down to that person who hates you and take them dinner and share the gospel with them. Heck no, I'm not going to do that. They'd done me wrong 50 years ago, and by golly, I'm going to remind them of it. My reputation, my power, my influence is at stake. There's no way I'm going to let that go. And Jesus says, as long as you continue to do that, you are going to lose your life. But the moment, the moment you take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you seek Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, when you do that, he says, then you're going to save it. I've said this repeatedly in here because we don't really believe it. We really do believe that when Stephen gets stoned to death, that somehow Stephen lost. Stephen didn't lose anything. When Peter is going to get executed... When Paul is going to get executed, when John is going to be cast out to the island in, in exile, we think they lost. They didn't lose anything. They gained their life. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? Now, that's kind of an interesting question because the reality is, the reality is we're willing to sell our souls for a lot lower price. But let's say that was the question. 
the devil comes up to you. This sounds like a story, right? Faust. The devil comes up to you and says, bow down before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Bow down before me and I will give you all the pleasures that there are. And you live a long life. You live 80, 90, 100, 120 years of ultimate pleasure and power and influence. And your soul is lost for all eternity. Now, I was a math major. You begin to understand that pleasure for this unit of time, pleasure times time, versus eternity, and when you start multiplying something by infinite, you get infinite. What does it profit you? And guess what? That's what we're doing. That's what Peter's doing. That's what the rest of the disciples are doing. They've got their minds focused on the things of man. They know what the agenda should be, and Jesus says, no, I have another agenda. I'm going to die. We're going to get there eventually, but I'm going to tell you the story just so you remember. He's going to die, and three days later, the sign of Jonah, he is going to be raised from the dead. Why? So that your sins and my sins can be forgiven. Guess what? Having your sins and my sins forgiven far exceeds the value of driving the Romans out of, the, uh, out of Jerusalem at this point in time. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And we will pick up right there next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Christ as our Savior. I pray, Lord, that we today would focus on the things of God rather than the things of man. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.